It's good to see you. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you're new or visiting, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you to this church. Uh, Every once in a while, I feel like I need to kind of introduce what the church is about a little bit. At Zoe, we're we're a simple church, okay? I think you can see that already um, just by looking at us. I'm not really like a fancy guy. But we have gotten a little fancier, um, but some of that just has to do with the venue we're renting. Like this stuff is not from us, it's just from the Methodist church. Uh, but it does look fancier. Um, but overall, it's not our priority to be a fancy church. We're not trying to be everything. We know that we can't be everything. We don't have the skills to be able to be as fancy maybe as some other churches are. And we're okay with that. Honestly, I think we want to lean into that a little bit. We want to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. Right, I was looking at Luke 10 earlier, uh, and in Luke 10, Jesus is talking to his friends, Martha and Mary, and Martha is busy serving and doing all these things, which it's good, right? It's good to serve. It's good to be attentive and hospitable to your guests, but then Jesus says, Martha, you're, you're worried and anxious about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, and he says, Mary has chosen that, and what Mary was doing was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. So for us, even if we do get a little fancier, just know that that's not really what we want to do. What we want to do is keep the main thing the main thing and make sure that every Sunday we're sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word. Okay, other things might change around it. Okay, it's not about even me, the messenger, but it's just about God's word and making sure that we pay attention. So that being said, let's grab our Bibles and open to 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel. Chapter 2, 2 Samuel 2. We're starting a new series, kind of. Um, we're doing both first and second Samuel, so it's kind of one series, but we're doing it in two parts. But we're doing a second series, starting it, um, and we're calling it King of Kings. Okay, so the first series, the first Samuel we called After God's Own Heart. In this next phase, second half of the story, we're calling it King of Kings because it's the book where David the king of Israel ascends to the throne finally. And we started maybe three weeks ago or so. We're in chapter two. Today, we're going to be looking at verses one through 11. Uh, so let me read that for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. So Second Samuel chapter two, verse one. This is the word of God. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahaniam and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. 
Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word this afternoon, God, I pray that you would show us Christ as we sang. God, we're looking at David, we're looking at his life, God, and yet we know that David himself points to his greater son, Jesus Christ. And as we remember that it's Palm Sunday today, God, I pray, Father, that in our hearts would be shouts of Hosanna, God, that we would want to welcome Jesus, that we would want to bow the knee before him and anoint him personally as the king of our hearts. God, we know that only you can do a work that's in us, that changes us, and that transforms us. We know that you use your word to do so. So, God, I pray that you would do that in us. God, we need your grace. So we look to you and pray that we would have open ears. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever prayed, thy kingdom come? If you grew up in like an old school traditional church, maybe you went to Christian school or something like that. Maybe you even prayed those literal words in the old King James, right? You know the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that's not really what I'm asking. Whether or not you pray that prayer or not, it doesn't really matter. What I'm asking is, have you ever wanted God to show up? Does that make sense? Like, if you're not an atheist, right, if you're someone who believes in God at least, have you ever wished that God would do something, right? You believe that God is real, you believe that God is maybe in control or good. Have you prayed and asked God to change something or to step into a situation? Have you wanted God's kingdom to break in? Maybe just looking at the brokenness of the world, your heart longed for God to do something to relieve the suffering of people. Maybe to put an end to wickedness and sin. Or maybe there's something more personal. Maybe you were going through a trial or something. Something really difficult for you in your own mind, in your own life. You were praying and waiting. It seemed like after all of that, still nothing was happening. That heaven itself was silent. I mean, I think if we're honest, a lot of us have prayed this. God, where are you? Because if you're real, it'd be really great if there was some kind of sign or something. One of the most retold stories in the English language is the story of Robin Hood. Um, And there are many versions. It's been told for hundreds of years. For me, the definitive version is the one where he's a fox. You know what I'm talking about? It's a cartoon. Um, But he's actually a person, not a fox, a, a fictional person, so it doesn't matter. But basically speaking, right, you all know the general story of Robin Hood, I think. If you don't, this is the gist. Robin Hood is a guy... Okay, he's a guy, an outlaw, and he steals from the rich to give to the poor. He steals from the rich to give to the needy, and he does this because the ruler of the land is the wicked Prince John. And he is very greedy, he is corrupt, and what he does is he taxes the people heavily to make sure that he can get some money for himself. Now, Prince John is not actually the real king. He is the brother of the king. His older brother, King Richard, the Lionheart, they call him, is out of the country. And so Prince John, with 
King Richard gone, Prince John is able to do whatever he wants. No one can stop him. No one can test him. And the people are suffering greatly under his rule. So Robin Hood and his merry men, they do whatever they can to help. They're not outlaws for the sake of it. Some people say that they are communists. That's beside the point. Robin Hood, what he does is he wants to help these people, his people, during this time of Prince John's evil rule. In some versions, Robin Hood is helped by Friar Tuck, a religious leader, and kind of he and the church ally themselves together. In other versions, he falls in love with Maid Marian, and there's kind of this romance to it. Regardless of the version, though, or these extraneous details, the one constant is that he always is trying to help. He's always struggling against the ruler who is actually on the throne right now, and yet things go from bad to worse. They keep getting worse. In the Disney version, because of Robin Hood, because of what he does, Prince John gets madder. He taxes people more heavily. There's a song. You might remember this if you've seen the movie. It's not one of the more popular Disney versions, but for some reason, my grandparents had this VHS, and it's like the one I watched, so I watched it many times. Uh, I don't know if you ever noticed, but they basically used the same character design for Little John as they did for Baloo. Anyway, okay. That's not in the script, but you can just look. It was a, they mailed it in, okay? It wasn't their best. But in the Disney version, there's a song, and they talk about how Prince John is the phony king of England. And because of this, because of this mockery, Prince John actually raises the taxes. Uh, he triples them. And when he triples the taxes, no one can pay, so he starts putting everyone in jail. Uh, they even take the poor box from the church, and Friar Tuck tries to stop the sheriff, and they put him in jail too. So everyone's in jail, everyone's struggling. Robin Hood's help doesn't really help. And here's the question I would have asked if I were them. Okay, even thinking about it now, King Richard, where are you? Where is this guy? Right, he's the king, he lets his brother take the throne and oppress his people. I mean, he's not dead, it's still his throne. He's still technically the one who has authority. Everyone knows this. But where is he? Life doesn't seem to be reflecting his rule at all. And this is where a lot of Christians, I think, find themselves. If I can make the analogy, at least in seasons, we know that God is in control. Right? I'm having no mic problems again, sorry. It's just, you know, this is what happens in life. We know that all glory and honor and power belong to the true God who sits on the throne. We know his name. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that he is God in heaven, that this is his world. But then we pray, and our prayers seem to go unanswered for months, years sometimes. If you talk to people in church and you know them well, you know that people are going through stuff. People are suffering. People struggle. People are struggling with sin. And of course, God wants you to to overcome sin. He wants to help his people. The, The Bible says so. And yet we pray, and it seems like nothing happens. Or we try to be faithful and do the right thing, and yet our circumstances go from bad to worse. Or we witness unbelievable suffering in the world. And even though, right, we kind of know the theological answers, and we can kind of slap a theological or psychological band-aid on the problem, The more we think about it, the more it shakes us to our core. And if you're not a Christian here today, I think it's a good time to be here. It's always a good time. But if you're not a Christian, I think that this is the one thing that you notice in Christians. They talk about God. They talk a big game about how God is great and how he has a plan and how he's good and how he's in control. And yet you look at the world. 
or you look at the corruption of Christians or the church, and the question you might have is, is this even real? Is God even real? Like, if God is up there, where is he? Now, we're in Second Samuel, like we said. We're in the beginning of this book, but we're in the middle of the story. We're picking it up right in the middle. And for a long time now, this has been David's reality. David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel years ago to replace the old king, the wicked king Saul. Saul was the king that people asked for. David was the king that God wanted. But even though David was chosen by God and anointed, he hasn't actually become king yet. In fact, he's been driven further and further away from the throne. Saul has hunted David, tried to kill him many times, and forced him into hiding. He's been away from his family. He's been away from his people. He's been away from the land of promise. He's in Philistine territory. Now understand that thy kingdom come is a literal thing for David. God himself said that David was going to be his king. David should be on the throne. And yet the kingdom seems more distant than it ever has. And sure, God has delivered David's life. And yes, David has trusted in the Lord and he's doing the best he can. However, just looking at the circumstances themselves, you might be tempted to think that God is just too absent. That it's not really real. And this is the disconnect that this passage points us to. That we have all these promises. We have this theology. We have these ideas about God in our head. But then our everyday lives don't seem to reflect that. Now the past couple of weeks, first chapter of Second Samuel, David receives word that Saul has died. The road is suddenly open. It seems like things are finally changing. God is clearly doing something. But what we're going to see today is that when God does work, when God does start to bring his kingdom into this world, it's not exactly what we expected it to look like. It looks a certain way, but it's different. And we're challenged by this question. Okay, we want God to do things. We want God's kingdom to come. This is what we pray for. But if God answers that prayer, would we even be able to recognize it if he did? In fact, how about this? Would we even want, want it if he did? So let's get into it. We'll walk through this text in three parts. First, the inquiry, the invitation, and the impediment. First, the inquiry, which is about listening. It's about listening. Verse 1. Look at your text. After this, David inquired of the Lord. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's one of those funny things in life. Got to tape it to my face. But this is how I uh, get your attention back, all right? Some of this uh, physical humor. All right, so verse 1, let's get into it. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now, okay, real quick, context. This follows right on the heels of David finding out for the first time that Saul is dead. And we talked about this the past two weeks. David doesn't rejoice at the downfall of his enemy. He actually grieves at the loss of Saul and Israel's king. And this says something about David, something big that will be explored throughout the book, that David actually understands what it means to be king. He understands the weight, the importance of the kingship to Israel and God's plan. Now, this is a good thing because David is about to be king. The door is open. However, even with the door open, even with the green light, 
David doesn't do what we expect him to do again. Instead of gathering up his merry men to go take over Saul's seat of power or to win the rest of Israel over or even to go back home. What does David do first? Don't miss this. Look at the text. What does David do first? He inquires of the Lord. And this statement is dripping with irony, especially in the Hebrew. Now, you might not remember this, but what does Saul mean? His name actually has a very literal meaning in the Hebrew. Saul means asked for. And there's a lot to this. He's the the king that the people asked for. But here, look at the contrast between Saul and David. David actually asked for the Lord. And that's what it says in Hebrew here for inquire. He asked of the Lord. He asked for guidance. He seeks after God. Where did Saul go astray? His name was asked for, but he stopped asking of the Lord. He just did whatever he wanted. But David, he listens. You know, there's a story that I read recently about FDR, you know, the old president, Franklin Roosevelt. And he was president four terms. Okay, so whether or not you think he's a good president or not, he stands out for that reason. Uh, And he had to do all these presidential formality things because he was president for so long. And there's a story about how uh, he got tired of it. He got tired of meeting up with foreign dignitaries and just meeting up with rando people who want the president's time and having to act like he's interested and they're acting like it. Everyone's waiting for their turn to speak. No one's really hearing. So one night he decided he'd find out if anybody was actually paying attention to what was being said. So he decided that at this meet and greet, he was going to say with a smile on his face and kind of just a firm handshake, I killed my grandmother this morning. Hello, I killed my grandmother this morning. And he did it. And people replied with, good, how are you? They replied with, good to see you too, Mr. President. Or how lovely to hear. How about... Until finally one foreign diplomat said, oh, well, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) It's not an easy thing to be a listener. That's why the Bible has to command us to be quick to hear. Some of us might not even realize how bad we are at listening because we're always talking because we're always processing and thinking about what we're going to say next. But what we're being shown here right away, this is all showing us why David is the right king. What we're being shown here is that David is different than Saul and really different than most people in the fact that before he does anything, he turns to listen. And it's not just that he's a good listener in general. No, it's that he makes it a priority to listen to God, that before he makes a move to act, he stops to ask If you look at the text again, he says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. He's not just asking for information here. He's asking for instruction. He wants to know what to do, what God wants him to do so that he can obey. Should I go here? And where should I go? Now, okay, you might be wondering, What does this have to do with us? I'm not David. I don't have special access to God. I can't just ask him, should I go to this place or that place? When I pray, I never hear an audible voice from heaven saying, just do this. And I'm like, oh, but what about this? And God doesn't just say, well, actually this. I mean, maybe you felt like God was leading you somewhere. Maybe you felt conviction. Maybe you're the kind of person who looks for open doors or closed doors. But the truth is, sometimes when we read the Bible, we wish we had something a little bit more certain, a little bit more specific How do you know it's an open door? Maybe it's a temptation from Satan, a trap. 
But the thing is about David, and we got to understand this, as far as we know, God never spoke to him audibly. Did you know that? What about right here? This is something else. God spoke to him through prophets. God spoke to him through other means, but he never heard God's voice directly. In fact, it's a very rare thing to hear God's voice in scripture. You think God's always doing miracles, always just showing up in a cloud of glory in the Old Testament? It doesn't happen that often. In fact, that's why Moses is so special. That's why the Bible says that since Moses, no prophet has arisen like him who speaks to God face to face. So how is David doing this? Well, the same way he has already. He uses the means that God has given him, the Urim and the Thummim. And you're like, what is that? Who remembers what the Urim and Thummim is here? If you do, then you get dismissed early. No, I'm just kidding. As a refresher, okay, the Urim and Thummim, no one knows. So if you raise your hand, I'm kind of suspicious of you right now. No one knows for sure. And that's the crazy thing about the Urim and the Thummim. We kind of know what they did. We kind of know some things around it. We know who was given it. But we don't know what they actually were. And the Jewish people who kept detailed records of everything, they lost it. They don't know what these things actually look like or were they're lost to history but here's what we do know they were given to the high priest they were part of the ephod and judging from how they were used it seems like they gave simple answers yes or no kind of like casting lots or rolling a dice or something like that so this is how god spoke to his people at this point in david's life since saul had killed all the priests at nob the high priest is on the run with david so before even we saw David seek the Lord in this way, he turned to the priest, the priest used the Urim and Thummim, and he can ask these simple questions and God can speak. So put it together, David has the means to inquire of God. And before he does anything else, he uses them. So let me ask you before we move on, before anything else, okay, regardless of the situations, that you find yourselves in the circumstances of your life, who you are personally, before you take action, before you decide to do this thing or that thing, before you even step through what seems like an obvious open door, do you inquire of the Lord? Do you stop to listen? Is listening and hearing God's word your first priority? Because, see, this is the difference between wanting God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, or wanting God to, to do your bidding. Wanting God's help in building your kingdom, so to speak. For David, the answer was, was this going to be David's kingdom, or was it going to be God's? And they weren't exactly the same thing. Someone once said, in our everyday lives, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self are always at war with one another. We see it in David, we see it in Saul. We see it in us. See, here's the thing. Some of us, if we take an objective look at our relationship with God, we're not often praying, thy kingdom come. In fact, if we take an audit of our prayer requests and the things that are so important to us, the things we bring to him, we're actually praying, my kingdom come. We're going to God with an agenda. We have a list of things that we wanted to take care of for us. We have ideas for him. Okay, God, if the world's going to be good, we need you to do this, 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 and this. I mean, have you ever done that? You call God king, but you treat him like your personal assistant. I know I've done it before, one time. I'm kidding. Instead of listening first to what God has to say, though, 
Do you go, listen, God, here's what needs to happen. See, sometimes we feel that God is distant, that he's not doing anything in our world or in our lives, that heaven is silent. And I get that feeling. I really do. But before we demand that God speak, are we even sure that we want to hear him? Because the truth is, God does speak. You know, I remember years ago, before I became a pastor, I was at this church retreat, and uh, there was a guest pastor there. And I was telling him, you know, I kind of want to be a pastor too. I was just putting it out there, thinking about going to seminary. And he was like, that's cool. Um, and basically, he started asking me questions about it. And he said, hey, are you prepared? And uh, I wanted to go to the master's seminary. A lot of you guys know this. And at master's, there's a strict dress code. So you, have to, you have to wear like a tie and like a nice shirt and stuff um, every day. Or else you get in I don't know what happens if you don't. Um, but you get in trouble. Uh, you face the wrath of John MacArthur. So I was like, what do you mean? I have like three ties already. And he's like, no, man. He's like, not like physically prepared. Are you spiritually prepared? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian. So yeah. He's like, well, how about this? How many times have you read through the Bible? And I was like, well, I've read through the entire New Testament and parts of the Old Testament and definitely several children's Bibles. And he stopped me right there. He said, Jesse, look, man, you want to be a preacher? You want to be someone who ministers the word of God to people? You feel like you have a call on your life to tell people what God says? And you haven't read the Bible even once? And I just ran away. So I don't know what he said after that. I'm kidding. It lit a fire under me, and I finally did. You'll be happy to know I finally did read the Bible through one time. But the thing is, I wanted to speak. I wanted to do stuff for God. But I hadn't been listening to what God had already said. My actions proved that I wanted to talk more than I wanted to hear. And see, the thing is, we all have the means that God has given us. We all have the word of God right here in the Bible, the 66 books. But how or why do we not go to them? God has recorded his will. He has given us his words. He has revealed who he is in this book. And we all have one on our shelves It's collecting dust, maybe, for some of us. Pick it up every once in a while. See, the thing is, what if we're looking at this wrongly? What if it's not about whether or not God is speaking or whether or not God is active? What if it's more about whether or not we are paying attention? What if it's not that God is distant? What if it's that we are willingly deaf? The truth is, some of us aren't prepared for the kingdom of God. The truth is some of us aren't even really looking for the kingdom of God. So before we talk about anything else, before we talk about what God is doing in this passage or in this world, before we talk about our issues or the problems we face, all of us, we have to reckon with this idea. Are we willing to receive what God has for us? Now, you might be saying, even the tape is failing me here. You might be thinking, okay, okay, I'll read the Bible. Okay, I'll do it. But I know the Bible doesn't tell me where to move, for example. It doesn't tell me how to fix my specific problems. So even if I read it, how will it help me at the end of the day? This leads to the second point. Second point, because what the Bible does is it connects us to the bigger picture. It lets us know what God has done. 
what he's already doing and what he will do in the future. And that's what God is doing for David here. Because if you look at the text again in verse 1, what does God tell David specifically? Where does he tell him to go? Look at the place. To Hebron. And this leads to the second point, the invitation. Which is about the choice we're all given. Okay, now, we got to listen to God. But after we listen, there's a choice we face. Look at verse 2. So David went up there to Hebron, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, David, okay, has already been anointed king by Samuel, by God. But the men of Judah come, his own tribesmen, and they anoint him to be their personal king. It's an acknowledgement that they will follow him now. And the kingdom of David begins in Hebron. And this starts to connect everything to the bigger picture. Because if you know your Old Testament, Hebron is very, very important. Now, on a superficial level, it's strategic. It makes sense. Hebron is one of the biggest cities in southern Judah. It's where David's from. Both of his wives are pretty well known in this area. There are a lot of allies here. There's a major trade route. It's even a high city built on a hill so they can see people approaching. All of that is good. But it's God who tells him to go to Hebron. This is where God leads him. So why Hebron? Well, turn with me to Genesis 13. Genesis chapter 13. Hebron goes way back in the Bible. 13th chapter of the first book of the Bible. Look at verse 14. This is hundreds of years before. Hebron, uh, Hebron, Genesis 13. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Okay, stop there. Okay, this is what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. God promised this random guy, Abram, whom he later renamed Abraham, three things. Okay, out of nowhere almost, he promises him three things. One, that he would inherit this land. He says, look around you. This land that doesn't belong to you, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. You can kind of put it together. He promises him land, hence the name promised land. That's the first thing. Second, he promises that he will have a humongous family. That his descendants will be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And this is very significant because uh, Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's an old guy. He can't even have kids anymore. He has zero children. God says, you're going to have a humongous family. And then third, and this is not in Genesis 13. It actually happened in the chapter before. Third, through Abram and his humongous family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And all of this is huge because this is Genesis. This is the beginning of the Bible. This is the first book. And in the beginning of Genesis in the beginning of the world, God creates the heavens and the earth. And it was good. He created humanity to live in relationship with him and to be fruitful and multiply. Life was supposed to be only good things. But Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, fell into sin. And through their sin, they severed their relationship with God and introduced death into the world, and the earth was cursed. 
See, the Bible isn't just a religious text that gives you some proverbs for wisdom, even though it has that. The Bible is not just a self-help manual so that you can be better, even though it should make you better. The Bible actually is the word of God, which tells us about everything that we need to know about God, about ourselves. And the Bible explains why reality is the way it is. It says that the reason why life is hard, why there is suffering and loss, is because of what theologians call the fall of mankind. Sin entered the world, and through sin, death. See, most of us don't want to think about uncomfortable things, least of all moral evil or death. But the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about these things. In fact, it talks about them a lot. God knows that there are things that truly matter, things that shake us to our core. You know, I was thinking about this recently. When you really experience loss in life, death of a loved one or something like that, nothing else matters for a while. You know what I mean? That you don't really care about eating good food. When you go into a room and people are joking, you don't even think to laugh at all. All of that stuff seems inconsequential It seems like it doesn't really make sense even because you've been hit with the stark black and white reality of this world, of this life, that there is pain and that there is suffering, there is loss, there is death. And the Bible in the first few pages explains everything about this. And the truth is, sin and suffering and death and destitution, they don't disprove the Bible, but they actually are the confirmation that it is true. And here's where it starts to come full circle. We have this bad news. We have the explanation for how things got ruined. And then things just start happening. We have a flood and all of that. Someday we'll talk about it. But then God, who created everything, speaks to this random guy, Abram. And he says that in this world that is hard, that is difficult, where even he was facing difficulty with infertility and things like that, into this world cursed because of sin. I'm going to do something in your family. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a huge nation. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's the opposite of curse? It's blessing. The curse will be reversed through your bloodline. In other words, early on in the Bible, you have this promise of hope. And Abraham finally did have one son, Isaac. But the thing is, The first part of the promise had to do with the land. That's what I shared. Abraham never really took control of the entire land. It was way later. Joshua led them in. But there was one tiny parcel, one small part of the land that Abraham was able to experience and live on. And if you look at verse 17, God says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. See, there was a place where the promise was given, but there was also a place where the promise was first inaugurated, you could say, where a taste of the promise was given, a taste of fulfillment. See, God has a plan for the world he created. He's doing something that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. Everything must be seen within this context, the context of the promise and what we see right here. In Hebron, is that through Abraham's line, God will fix not just one man's problems or one nation's issues, but the whole scope of it, the fall, the curse, sin and death, everything. The beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan, his promise, 
is at Hebron. So 2 Samuel 2, you can turn back there. 2 Samuel 2. It's not a random place. The fact that David begins his kingship in Hebron connects him into the greater story, the greater narrative of what God is doing. David is in the line of Abraham, and God is continuing to fulfill his promise now through his king. God is clearly at work. And so, when the men of Judah, when they ally themselves with David, they are effectively getting on board with what God is doing. And yet, if you do the math, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Only one joins him. Look at verse 4. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Okay, so stop there for one second. There are still people who are loyal to Saul. Verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May ye be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Okay, so quick recap. Early on in Saul's kingship, he was actually not a terrible king, and he helped out the people of Jabesh-Gilead, and they never forgot it. So when Saul was killed by the Philistines, and the Philistines took his body, and they hung it up on the wall as a war trophy, the men of Jabesh-Gilead actually risked life and limb, snuck over there, and took the body back to give it a proper burial. Okay, they cared about Saul. If anyone was loyal to Saul, truly from the heart, in Israel, it was these guys. So David, he reaches out to commend them. Part of it is shrewd politics, but part of it also is he's impressed with them, their loyalty. And in reaching out to them, it's a royal gesture that's worthy of the true king. He blesses them in the name of the Lord for doing something good. Now look at verse 6. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. And this is what David understands, okay, as the Lord's anointed, something Saul never fully did. That as the one God chose, he represents God, whether he likes it or not. A huge part of how God will show his faithfulness to them is through David. And he intends to unite the people under the banner of the Lord. Verse 7, now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, hear what he's saying. Twice he says, Saul, your Lord, hint, hint, is dead. The guy you followed is gone now. What's the implication? You have a choice. You're a free agent. Who are you going to follow? Judah has anointed me. What are you going to do? And he puts the ball in their court, and it's in our court too. See, what we see with David is that he picks it up. He picks up the promise. What God is doing is now clearly through David, and God is always working. The choice for us isn't, okay, am I just going to live my own life or am I going to be religious? That's not really the way we should be framing it. The choice for us is God is doing something in the world. Are we going to join in with it? Are we going to get on board or are we going to resist it? Are we going to get on board or not? See, what worries do you have in your life? Let's just make it personal for you, okay? We... We all have issues. We all have things going on. We have things that stress us out, keep us up at night. What concerns do you have? The truth is God does care. And you might have heard this in church before. God cares about you. He has a plan for you. 
God is thinking about you. And that is actually true and biblical and right and good. Psalm 56, 8 says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows every single tear that you shed. It's not just a sentimental thing. It's a true theological reality. 1 Peter 5, 7 says that you should cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares about everything that you are going through. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He doesn't turn a blind eye to your struggles. And yet, if we stop there, if that's all church is, if that's all that I say, I'm doing you a disservice. Because God doesn't look at this world and see only you. You're not the only important person that exists. He doesn't just look at Zoe. He doesn't just look at Texas or America or even this current generation. God is about all of heaven and earth. And sometimes we just need to take a step back and realize how small we are. I'm not saying you're not important, but we are small. It's not all about us. God is doing things across eternity. He's doing things in history. He has crazy things stored up in the future. And sometimes we need to stop making it all about ourselves and think about how we can get on board with him and what he's doing. We can get so caught up in our issues that we forget the bigger picture, that the kingdom of Almighty God is at hand, that eternity itself hangs in the balance, that people need Jesus. And if you're a Christian, the only reason you're still here and not with the Lord is because there's a commission for you to fulfill. So what will we do? God is calling all of us to himself, to his service, calling us to bend the knee, to be good and faithful servants. What will you do? Will you heed the call? Or will you get in the way? And this leads to the final point, the final point, the impediment. See, just because it's hard doesn't mean that God's not in it. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahaniam and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Okay, so get this. David is king, but strong contrast, not everyone wants him to be king. Right away, there is opposition, an impediment to his coronation. Abner, Saul's general, one of the strongest people in the land, takes Saul's youngest son, who wasn't killed in battle, and he makes him the new king. There are still two kings in Israel. David's undisputed reign was short-lived. The power struggle isn't over. And spoiler alert, Abner knows that David is supposed to be king. We don't find that out for a little while. But later on, he goes, I know that God made you king, basically. He knows what God is doing. He knows that God has a plan, and yet Abner is going against that plan willingly. And we'll talk about that in the next few weeks, so hold that thought. But here's the idea here before we close. Even when God is working, even when God's kingdom is breaking through into this world, there still might be opposition. Even when God is doing clear things in your life, it still might be hard. Even when the plan is moving forward, there still might be impediments. Look at verse 9. Look at how many places Ishbosheth is king over. It's a lot more than just one tribe. It's a lot more than just Judah. 
In fact, if you looked at, uh, looked at a map, it would seem that David's power is comparatively small compared to everyone else. It's not easy. And there's a tendency in Christianity to be all or nothing. Either it's God is victorious and God is in charge, or I don't even know if God exists. Right? Either all my problems go away, or God must have forsaken me. We can believe that the only way to know we're in God's will is if everything is going smoothly and easily. We know that God is with us, that God is behind this, that God is helping us because everything is going great and feels good. But that's not the case at all. David, even though things are moving forward, even though the kingdom of God is breaking through, David is facing massive resistance. And what does the Bible say? The kingdom of God, it starts like the biggest tree. Now it says it starts as a mustard seed. You know, today is Palm Sunday, and we read the text, Matthew 21, for scripture reading. Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble. But even so, everyone is cheering for him. They're shouting, Hosanna. They're saying, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're hyping him up. They're laying down their coats on the ground. They're waving palm branches, kind of like this. Everyone loves Jesus. Just a few days later, people are shouting, crucify him, and they kill him on a Roman cross. Circumstances can change just like that. But the thing is, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday? Was it that God's will was starting and stopping? Sometimes God's kingdom was coming, and then sometimes it was going away in retreat? No, all of it, through the ups and downs, was God's plan. From our perspective, it looked like it was a roller coaster, but from God's perspective, everything was going exactly how he wanted. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll go here, and then we'll finish this. 2 Corinthians 5. Because you might be wondering, okay, what does it mean to get on board with what God is doing? We've been talking about God's kingdom, talking about his plan, listening to his word. What does his word say? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. There's so much in here, but we'll just go to certain parts. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he's talking about Jesus Christ, okay? We're talking about Jesus in church. But Jesus is the one who brought reconciliation. Abraham and David, they were carriers of the promise, but they couldn't fulfill it. For all their faith, for all their courage, for how great they were, they weren't able to reverse the curse. They weren't able to lift us from the fall. They weren't able to reconcile heaven and earth. The problems were still there, and they died. But Jesus... The very first verse of the New Testament says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, was born into this world. Jesus is the one who has the ability to reconcile. And what does he do? He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, the word Christ is not his name. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. And we're in first and second Samuel. What does anointed one mean? It means king. Jesus is the king. 
And Jesus has entrusted us as his ambassadors to preach this message of reconciliation, that things could be different. And how is reconciliation bought and paid for? Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He paid the price. He took on our debt. He took God's wrath upon himself. He stepped into our place. Jesus is the true and rightful king. The thing is, some did believe in him and follow him and bend the knee, but many didn't. Some viciously opposed him. Some wanted him to be crucified. And they got their wish. But Jesus didn't die for his own sake. He died for ours. We'll talk about next week. He actually came back to life. Crazy story how that works. But the thing is, Jesus is alive today. And the throne belongs to him. And he himself said that he will return And that is our hope. We live in this time in between. And there will be ups and downs. And at the end of 2 Samuel, our passage, it says, Isbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. It's seven years and six months before he unifies the entire kingdom. Seven years. That's a huge amount of time to wait. But that's how God works. For God, a thousand years can be a day. A day can be a thousand years. The kingdom was already and it was not yet. And that's exactly how we live today. We live in this time in between. Jesus has already started the kingdom. The message of reconciliation is already ours to give. We are ambassadors. The end is near, but it's not here yet. So in the meantime, we live for him. We listen for the words of our king. We bend the knee and serve him no matter the opposition. Back to Robin Hood, and then we'll end this. There are many variations, like I said, about the Robin Hood story. Um, And there's a reason why I brought it up in particular. But there are many variations. And like I said, people interpret it all sorts of different ways. They co-opt Robin Hood for their own interests. Some say he's a communist. Some say he's fighting against communism. Some say he's religious. Some say he's not. Some say he's a romantic figure. Some say there's all these different, there's Robin Hood men in tights. There's a lot of different versions. But basically... It always goes the same way. He's fighting against Prince John. Things are going from bad to worse. And in the end, Robin Hood wins in a sense, but it's not Robin Hood's victory that leads to ultimate victory. Because even though Robin Hood wins, however he wins, in a tournament, whatever happens, even though the evil Prince John is somehow exposed and deposed, the climactic moment actually has nothing to do with these guys. Do you remember this? Because what happens at the very end of the Robin Hood story? King Richard, the Lionheart, comes back. And this is what makes Robin Hood super unique as a story. Because Robin Hood is, I guess you could say, the protagonist of the story. And yet, it's very clear that he is not the most important person. He might be the main character from our perspective, but the story's not about him. He's never making it about himself. And in the end, he fades off into obscurity. Because all he was trying to do was keep things going until King Richard came back. See, Robin Hood is different than almost every other story because most stories, they focus on the prince or on the princess or the king or the queen. And our main character is the main person. But in the end, Robin Hood, our hero, is just a guy who is seeking the kingdom of his true king. He's not a communist fighting for communism. He's not an anti-communist fighting for whatever. He doesn't want to rob the rich for the sake of it. 
He's someone who believes in the true king, that this kingdom belongs to him. He's trying to live for him, trying to protect his people, trying to serve him. And he's trying to hold out until the king comes back. And that's really it. This isn't about you and it's not about me. We're not the main characters. We're not the most important people who ever lived. We're not kings. We're not queens. We're not princes or princesses. At best, we're Robin Hood. And that's a good thing. Jesus is the actual king. And we have a role to play in serving him. In our obedience, in our faith, in our commitment to the gospel, his message of reconciliation that he's given, our prayers, praying thy kingdom come, God is actually using those things, working through those things to make it all happen. And we know how the story ends. Jesus will return, Revelation 19, riding on a white horse, the Lion of Judah, with a name written on him. Do you know what it is? King of Kings. Because even David himself bends the knee. So the truth is, where is God? The question is, what is God doing? He's coming soon. In the meantime, he is working, he's always working, and he is working through us. So the question for us is, will we listen to his word? Will we join in on what he's doing? Will we wait and serve him, even if the opposition is great? I pray that we will. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we need to remember, God, that even though you do care for us, God, and we are so thankful for that, even though we can come before you as our Father and pour out our hearts to you, that you are the king of the universe, that you rule and you reign, God, and that you deserve our allegiance, our loyalty, and our service. And God, I pray, God, that we would use our lives, God, in a way that pleases you. God, I pray that we would desire your kingdom and your reign in this world. And God, I pray that for each of us, it would start with our hearts. God, that we would submit ourselves to you, heart and soul. That we would stop living for lesser things. That we would put away our idols. God, that we would deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow you wherever you might lead us. And God, I pray that you would do great things through us, not for ourselves, not for our glory, but for yours. God, I pray that you would lift up Christ in us. And I pray, God, that in some small way, God, by your grace and mercy, that your kingdom would come, God, in our hearts, through our lives, in the ministry of reconciliation in this church. God, we need you, so we look to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.